This morning we're in Mark 8, Mark 8, 1 through 8. In those days, when again a great crowd had gathered and they had nothing to eat, he called his disciples to him and said to them, I have compassion on the crowd because they have been with me now three days and have nothing to eat. And if I send them away hungry to their homes, they will faint on the way. And some of them have come from far away. And his disciples answered him, How can one feed these people with bread here in this desolate place? And he asked them, How many loaves do you have? And they said, Seven. And he directed the crowd to sit down on the ground, and he took the seven loaves, and having having given thanks, he broke them and gave them to his disciples to set before the people, and they set them before the crowd. And they had a few small fish, and having blessed them, he said to these, Also should be set before them. And they ate and were satisfied, and they took up the broken pieces left over, seven baskets full. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Uh, let's pray. Father, thank you for another morning here uh, that we come together to, get, to worship you and to glorify your name. As you take care of us in the body, I pray that we would be eager for, to be nourished through your word as well, uh, that you would illumine our hearts and minds, that we would direct our obedience to you and your word, and that we find it completely satisfying and sufficient. Please be with Dan and your spirit be with him as he exhorts us. Amen. We're coming towards the middle of our uh, book here in the Gospel of Mark. As we get to chapter 8 in Mark, at the end of chapter 8, we really have the first sort of pinnacle or climax that we are going to see in Mark. Mark, if you remember, he's been going about for a while now asking and answering the question, who is Jesus? We've seen Jesus revealing this, or Mark revealing this answer time and time again through the miracles of Jesus, through the teaching of Jesus, through his parables, through the interactions with the crowd, and we are seeing that indeed Jesus is the Son of God. And Mark has been working towards this, and next week, spoiler alert, we'll see Peter as he confesses indeed that Jesus Christ is the Lord. And so it'll kind of crescendo there. Last weekend, I'm part of a nonprofit, and they were doing a a big fundraiser bike race last week. And so they were riding the Gap Trail, which goes from, starts down at the point in Pittsburgh and goes to Cumberland, Maryland. So over three days, riding 150 miles, and we're raising some money. And so on this ride, you get to about the halfway point, maybe, and it starts this slow... uh, incline and you you don't really notice it unless the bikers I wasn't riding a bike they were they noticed it and so it slowly builds and it slowly builds and on the third day it keeps going and going for several miles and then you get to the Mason Dixon line about 22 miles something like that from Cumberland Maryland and at the Mason Dixon line you reach the high point of the trail and so the last 22 miles everyone like doubles their speed as they are just coasting downhill for the finish line. Mark 8 kind of works like that, if you can picture that. Mark has been going back and forth on Jesus all the way up to who is Jesus. And for the most part, people are getting it wrong. Occasionally you see glimpses of faith, but they're not really understanding it. Even geographically, it kind of sets itself up like that. With Mark, if you notice, Jesus is ministering. It seems like whenever he's done, he gets in a boat and goes across the Sea of Galilee. 
And there's a crowd. Then he gets in the boat and goes across the Sea of Galilee. And there's the Pharisees and they run him off and he gets in the boat. And he's just kind of crisscrossing the Sea of Galilee. And for the most part, been in Jewish provinces. We saw last week he's moved into a Gentile area. He'll be there again. You'll notice, though, once we get to Mark chapter 8, going forward from there, he's got his eyes set on Jerusalem. And he is heading straight forward. Jerusalem. If the shadow of the cross has fallen over the ministry of Jesus, as we said it has, from eight on, it's no longer just the shadow there, but he is on a march towards Jerusalem and towards the cross of Christ. Up to this point, he's been ministering mostly to crowds. After the confession of Peter, you'll see it mainly he will turn to the disciples and he will give them clear and direct teaching. He's tried to keep his true identity somewhat covered. As as people come and he performs miracles, he's always instructing them, don't tell anyone about me, don't tell anyone about me. You'll see that once more in chapter 9, but after that it ends. As he heads towards the cross... And so if at first we're answering the question, who is Jesus, we will see then in the second half as it heads toward the cross, why has he come? Why has Jesus come? Who is he? He is the anointed king. He is the Messiah. But not like the people are picturing, because he will also be the suffering servant, and we will see those two merge And so that's kind of where we are coming up on. And so our passage here today really is the crescendo of these crossing Galilee, Sea of Galilee going back and forth towards this revealing who is Jesus and the unbelief and the error of the people. And it kind of crescendos here this morning. You see what you heard read for you, the first part of our text today. We'll go through verse 21. We'll move through it pretty quickly. But you see in the first part, the feeding of the 4,000. Perhaps you had a deja vu moment if you've been with us here a little bit. In chapter 6, a very similar event in the feeding of the 5,000. There's lots of similarities. Uh, So much so that there are many critical scholars who suggest this is the same event. And Mark just kind of got messed up and didn't record it very well. And... We know that not to be true, one that goes against what we believe about God's word and the character of God. But also we'll see at the end of our text that Jesus refers to both events individually. There are some unique things about the feeding of the 4,000. We won't spend a lot of time on it because it is looking at the compassion of Jesus that he had towards meeting the needs of this crowd like he did with the feeding of the 5,000. One, it is a bit smaller of a crowd If you remember the 5,000, it was men, so there was probably 15 to 20,000 people total. Here it seems that there's 4,000. They're in a more desolate area. It's been three days since they've had food. The the stakes are a little bit higher, so there's a little more here, uh, a little more of a desperate situation as Jesus is not approached by the disciples, but himself sees the need for the bread. But probably the most important distinction is is that he's been in these Jewish provinces all the way through here. The feeding of the 5,000 would have been just about exclusively a Jewish crowd. But now in the feeding of the 4,000, he's moved over into this Gentile area. So it's going to be a predominantly Gentile crowd. 
And what it's doing is it's moving forward what we saw last week with the Syrophoenician woman. Just to review for a moment, if you remember, as Jesus comes and the Syrophoenician woman comes up to Jesus and, and begs for his help, her, Jesus' help with her daughter, and he teaches her that his mission is first to the Jewish people, and then from there it will go out to the nations. In fact, we see just right after Jesus' resurrection, he is going to commission the disciples to take the gospel to the nations. But Jesus comes primarily to the covenant people, to the Jewish people. And he teaches her this by the example of the children get their, feet, get their food before the pets get their food. If you remember that from last week. And what we would think, the woman maybe would be insulted or incensed at this sort of derogatory comment. Instead, she hears the parable of Jesus. And for the first time, people misunderstanding the parables again and again, for the first time, this woman enters into the parable with Jesus and responds correctly to him. First, she hears that challenge. She doesn't deny what Jesus is saying. She said, yes, I accept that. I am not part of the covenant people of God. Yes, I don't have the Old Testament scriptures. I get it. I don't have a seat at the table. I have not earned that. I do not deserve a seat at the table. I will not argue with you. But then she hears that offer within it and says to Jesus, but there's still some scraps for the pets, right? In other words, she's being assertive, but not on her own value and her own worth, not fighting for her own rights, but being assertive on the goodness and the mercy of Jesus Christ. Though she is not saying, give me what I deserve on the basis of my goodness. She is saying, give me what I do not deserve on the basis of your goodness. And if you remember, as we looked at the Greek there for a moment, Jesus' response is, what an answer. Someone has gotten it. And so what this is doing now in the feeding of the 4,000 is taking this, this glimpse of the gospel going to the nations, of what will be the mission of the disciples, what the true look of Jesus' kingdom will be. It belongs to those who approach him not on their own worth, but on the worth of Jesus Christ. Realize they've not earned a seat at the table, but Jesus Christ in his mercy, in his goodness is offering it. But instead of it just being the idea of scraps for the pets, here we see it's food in abundance. So much abundance that in verse 8 it says that they ate and they were satisfied. They, they were fully full and they were satisfied. And there's still seven baskets left over. <clears throat> we noticed last week that these miracles work as prophecy. They are miracles, but they are also prophetic. And here is the same thing. They're prophetic in the sense that Jesus is fulfilling an Old Testament prophecy for last week. It was when the blind see and the deaf hear and the lame leap. That's what's going to happen when God is here. When God comes, that's what's going to happen. And we see, oh, the lame are leaking, leaping, the blind are seeing, the, the, the mute are confessing Jesus Christ. And we see God is here. In the person of Jesus Christ, God is here. The kingdom is at hand because Jesus is here. In Isaiah 55, a text we use often for our call to worship, the prophet speaking 
But the voice of the Lord says, come everyone who thirsts, come to the waters. He who has no money, come buy and eat. Come buy wine and milk without money and without price. Saying, come to be satisfied. Come be filled with with food that you cannot buy, with food you cannot provide for yourself. Come and be filled. He moves on in Isaiah 55. Behold, I made him a witness to the peoples, a leader and commander for the peoples. But you shall call a nation that you do not know. And a nation that did not know you shall run to you because of the Lord your God and of the Holy One of Israel, for he has glorified you. And in this prophecy is saying that the king is coming and Jesus indeed is that king and he is coming and he is satisfying the people. But it's not just his covenant people. He is calling nations that are far off and he's calling them unto himself and making them his people and he is their God. And so Jesus in this miracle is we see it attesting that indeed God is among us but it's also pointing us forward as it always does to his return. The nature of his kingdom. He'll be saving people from every tongue and tribe. All right. In the midst then of this miracle, there's a couple lessons that we learn. We see just the beauty and the glory and the power of God and what he is doing for us in Christ Jesus, the kingdom that he is offering in Christ Jesus. But in the midst of it, we see this lesson, just how easy it is to forget the goodness of God. To forget the goodness of God. If you're looking at the feeding of the 4,000, Jesus says he's going to get them bread. And in verse 4, the disciples answer, how can one feed these people with bread here in this desolate place? If you're like me, when you read that, you're like, what in the world? Like, I don't know. A few weeks ago, he just fed five, 20,000 people. It just happened where we didn't have bread. We had a couple loaves and he fed everybody. We find ourselves in almost the exact same situation and the disciples are like, how is this going to work? How is he going to feed anybody with this bread? They, they quickly forget the goodness and the power and the faithfulness of God. I think before we get too, you know, upset at the disciples, we we can turn it inward, right? And look a little bit. It's easy, we're all guilty of it, to enjoy the answers to prayer, the faithfulness of God, the goodnesses of God, the promises of God, to enjoy his goodness again and again and again. And as soon as we hit a little obstacle... We're just beside ourselves. I thought God was going to be good to me. I I thought God was going to care for me. How do I get past this obstacle? How do I move on? And we, we can just look everywhere for an answer except to the Lord. We see his faithfulness again and again and again, but it doesn't take much for us to really forget about his goodness and his faithfulness. That difficulty in a relationship, that difficulty in a marriage, that difficulty at work, that difficulty, whatever it might be. And we forget the goodness of God. We forget his provision. We don't know. We're confused. We don't know where to turn. We don't know. This is the disciples. He 
just performed this miracle, almost this exact miracle. They find themselves in the situation and they think, how in the world is God going to provide bread for us? They just saw it. I think we can live this way, we talked about it in Sunday school just a little bit, because we are quick to forget his biggest gift to us, his greatest gift to us. Romans 8, we go back to Romans 8 a lot. But that argument from greatest to smallest, he has given us the son. He has freely given us Jesus Christ. How will he not also with him freely give us all things? We forget the goodness of God when something in this age goes a little difficult because we're not bringing to mind, we're not remembering. He has given us Jesus Christ. The sinless son of man became sin for us and laid down his life. You don't think that if he's given us the son, he will most assuredly give us everything else? Everything that we need? And yet it is easy for us to get tunnel vision in on just the immediacy of life and the difficulties, the things right before us, and to start not trusting in God, start complaining and forget the goodness of God. Well, we see a whole different level of unbelief in verses 11 through 13. Here we have a sign of unbelief. If you would listen, the Pharisees came and began to argue with him, with Jesus, seeking from him a sign from heaven to test him. Verse 12, this is the third time we've seen this in Mark. And he sighed deeply in his spirit. He's exhausted with these people. And said, why does this generation seek a sign? Truly, I say to you, no sign will be given to this generation. And he left them, got into the boat again, and went to the other side. The Pharisees certainly have hearts of unbelief. They ask for a sign in order that they might believe. (laughs) And in asking for a sign, they show us one more sign of unbelief. For one, they've already seen signs. Jesus has performed all kinds of miracles and things in front of them. You remember, we performed early miracles and they said, oh, this is from the power of Beelzebub, saying he's working from the powers of darkness. And Jesus uses logic to rebuke them for that. You remember maybe the strongest sign he showed them is when he comes to the lame man and instead of just healing him right up front, he says to the lame man, your sins are forgiven. And the Pharisees are besides themselves with anger. And so Jesus asks, if you remember, he says, well, what's easier for me to say? Your sins are forgiven or get up and walk? And what he's saying is it's actually easier for him to say your sins are forgiven because you can't really tell if the guy's sins are forgiven. No one can test him on that. Whereas if he says to this man, get up and walk, immediately you could test his authority. Is, this, is he really healing this person? Does he have this sort of power? So he asks this question to the Pharisees, and then the next thing Jesus does is he says, get up and walk, and the man gets up and walks. What Jesus is doing is saying, if I have authority to heal this man, I'm telling you, I have the authority to forgive his sins. I am the Son of God. And instead of seeing that sign and rejoicing, they decided, the Pharisees decide they're going to plot how to destroy Jesus. So one... <clears throat> Showing them a miracle, showing them a sign, 
is not going to change their minds. And to the Pharisees, the Herod, they're going to keep asking for signs all the way up till right before Jesus' death in verse 15. I read this illustration, so it's not mine. I just read it this week, so I'll, I'll tell you because I think it is helpful. Why is this a sign of unbelief? Imagine you have a couple, the husband just does not trust his wife. He doesn't believe that his wife is being faithful to him. So he's going out of town for a week, and he wants to prove her faithfulness, so he hires a private eye, a detective, and says, well, I'm gone, I want you to follow my wife around. Well, the fact that he's doing that right there is a sign of his unbelief. He gets home, private eye comes up and says, yeah, it was all good. She was faithful to you. At that moment, does the husband be like, I do believe her. I do entrust myself to her. I do love her. No, that is not proving anything to him. He doesn't believe her. It's only a sign that he doesn't believe her, that he doesn't trust her, that he doesn't love her, whatever it all is. He's simply putting her to a test to prove what he doesn't believe. That's what the Pharisees are doing here. It's not if Jesus would do something, then they actually would believe. No, it's just simply a sign that they do not believe. And that is not how faith works. Faith is with understanding. It's not uh, without reason, but faith doesn't put Jesus to the test. It doesn't put before Jesus, you do this and I'll believe. You accomplish this and I'll believe. Perhaps you've treated Jesus that way more superstitiously. I have to admit, I remember as a high school baseball player, you know, you're up to bat, there's a guy on second and third, I'm in the batter's box thinking, I promise I'll be a better witness if you just let me hit a double right here. You know, like in this weird sort of negotiation. It it doesn't work like that with our Lord that we can just demand a sign for him and he'll perform it for us. And faith doesn't work that way because even if the sign was there, we would not believe. He must grant us faith. And so we see this sign of unbelief from the Pharisees one more time. And it sits right back to back again with that Syrophoenician woman and her faith and what the Lord was offering the Pharisees missing the sign altogether. Jesus, it's clear when you read it in John a little bit, but as Jesus sighs and you can tell he's just exhausted with them and the fact that There was just a sign with the feeding of the 5,000 and then the feeding of the 4,000. And in fact, in John, it says, you're filled with bread, but you've missed the sign. I am the bread of life. I am the bread of life. I am the sign. I am what satisfies. I am what fulfills. Jesus is the sign that is being offered. If you are going to reject him, if you're not going to believe him as... God in human form come. If you are not going to believe him, then some sign, some miracle, you're not going to believe anything. Jesus is saying, don't you miss it? I am the sign. I am the fulfillment. I am what has come and satisfied. I am the bread of life that is being offered. I am the sign. 
And again, sometimes we want Jesus to prove his love to us, prove that he's near us, prove because it feels like the circumstances of life are just up against us and we forget he's given us Jesus Christ. He's given us the greatest gift already. Jesus has died for our sins. He is the bread of life. That is the sign. So we see that unbelief in the Pharisees. But finally, as we move to our last section here, we see the leaven of unbelief. Listen, I'll read verses 14 through 21. It says, Now they had forgotten to bring bread, and they had only one loaf with them in the boat. And he cautioned them. This is Jesus with the disciples. And he cautioned them, saying, Watch out. Beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and the leaven of Herod. They began discussing with one another the fact that they had no bread. And Jesus, aware of this, said to them, Why are you discussing the fact that you have no bread? Do you not yet perceive or understand, or your hearts hardened? Having eyes, do you not see? Having ears, do you not hear? And do you not remember when I broke the five loaves for the 5,000? How many baskets full of broken pieces did you take up? They said to him, Twelve. And the seven for the four thousand. How many baskets full of broken pieces did you take up? And they said to him, seven. And he said to them, do you not yet understand? Here it's not willful disbelief, but yet unbelief still the same. They get on the boat. You see they have one loaf of bread. I don't know what it is with the disciples and bread. They just... You know what comes to mind? Maybe a week ago, two weeks ago, my in-laws were in town and they took us uh, to Texas Roadhouse for dinner. So there's six of us plus them. So there's eight of us sitting there. And the waiter comes out with a basket of, you know, the Texas Roadhouse rolls with the cinnamon butter, whatever. A basket of six rolls. And there's eight of us sitting there. (laughs) Of course, the kids, they have no, you know, they just immediately go for it. So all the adults are just like eyeing one another up, like, okay, what are we doing here? We got, you know, it seems to be sort of what's going on with the disciples. Like we got one loaf of bread. Someone forgot the bread. Who's not getting bread? And they're eyeballing it up. And so Jesus takes this bread and from it, he's going to use it as an object lesson. It's an illustration that's used in the New Testament quite a bit. The leaven refers to the yeast that is added to bread to make it rise. And it's speaking about the influence of something little, just a little bit of something can totally change the shape, the outcome of what it is added to. So a little bit of yeast in this bread causes it to rise, changes it totally from what it was. And in the New Testament, <clears throat> this illustration is used, and it's almost always, not exclusively, but almost always a negative type of influence. That a little bit of something can really ruin everything around it. And so we see it with pride. We see it with um, bitterness. We see it with evildoers that a little bit of this can infect, can ruin everything. And here it is the hypocrisy and unbelief of the Pharisees and Herod. Both the Pharisees and Herod, they they have this interest in Jesus, but it's a a self-interest. They both kind of want to appear as something. And so we saw it just a couple weeks ago 
as he called the, the Pharisees legalists, they, they serve him in their actions and words, but their heart is far from him. There's this sort of legalistic approach to Jesus. There's unbelief. And he's telling the disciples, you need to be, wa- be aware of this. That this little bit of unbelief, it can spread in the heart. It can start affecting everything about your life. This hypocrisy, this unbelief. And you see that by the response, the disciples just go back to who's going to get the bread? (laughs) You know, they've missed it. And so that's why Jesus comes back with all of those questions, right? One after another. As if to say, this is the effect of that leaven. This is the effect of that unbelief, that little bit that can spread. Are your hearts hard now? Do you have ears but can't hear? Do you have eyes but can't see? Do you not understand what is going on here? Are you living without your eyes set upon Jesus, without entering in as a Syrophoenician woman did into the parable? You're, you're viewing it from the outside. You're not understanding it. <clears throat> I think this is the more deceptive, subtle kind of unbelief that we struggle with. More than the Pharisees in a willful unbelieving. But this one that sort of takes our eyes off the promises of Jesus, takes our eyes off the provision of Jesus, forgets the goodness of our Lord, and starts focusing on whatever's right in front of us, whatever the job is that needs done, whatever the hardship is, whatever you put it there, whatever just pragmatically needs done, and our eyes focus on that. We've mentioned this before, but the unbelief starts to show itself in like the unbelief of complaining. You find yourself grumbling and complaining and murmuring a lot because you don't really believe that God's plan is best for you. You don't really believe that he is with you and he is leading you. You say you do, but you grumble and complain all the time about your circumstances and about, it just becomes a habit almost. That complaining, instead of gratitude, is, is rooted in unbelief. An unbelief in, in gossip. That you really don't care for the community like the Lord's told you to. You really don't see that person believe that, that they are made in God's image and, and that you're going to do those one another's for scripture for them. Instead, you kind of want some attention. You kind of want to, to be in the thick of things. And so gossip starts. The unbelief of, of lust, that you don't really believe what God has created for a man and woman in a marriage relationship, that that is where it should exist and where God has placed you in life, he's going to provide fulfillment for you. So you look outside of it for fulfillment in adultery, in pornography, whatever it might be. The unbelief that comes from a lack of generosity, you, you don't you don't really trust that it's going to meet all your needs, so you want to keep it to yourself. Unbelief shows itself in these more subtle, deceptive ways, more than just standing up and saying, I don't believe you, God. But it starts to infiltrate our hearts in the way that we act. We start caring more about the performance and what other people see on the outside than what we learn that ultimately it is a religion of the heart. We see it here. We see it here clearly with the Pharisees. 
And we see it more subtly with the disciples. And yet in the unbelief, we're moving towards Peter's confession. We'll see that next week. But even in unbelief, we are reminded that Jesus indeed is the bread of life. He is the sign. It is the gift of Jesus Christ himself that anchors our faith and our trust and our hope and all other lesser gifts. Let's take a moment, if you would, ask our God to plant this word firmly in our hearts. Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you that it is living and active. We thank you that it does, by the Spirit, produce faith. Lord, this is why the normal means of grace are so important, Lord. That it shakes us from being distracted and brings our hearts and our minds back to you. It reminds us again of Christ and what he has done for us, that our boast is indeed in the cross. Lord, it helps by your grace to shake off that leaven of hypocrisy and pride and unbelief. Lord, might you take your word and do that work in our hearts this morning. 